I wish we had a fucking video for this. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna describe what I'm seeing here. It's a uh, silvery-haired wig and beard uh, that is an Uncle Sam costume. <laughs> this week, we are back to Inside the Nudge Unit by... David Halpern. David Halpern, the chief executive of the Behavioral Insights team in the UK government, um, which is now an independent organization. So we talked about this last week. In particular, we talked about... Um, well, actually, it was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yep. Last but, week was Japanese death poems. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we talked about, basically, you know, these different tools, what they call nudges, and um, in particular, we talked about the efficacy and the ethics of the government using these tools mm -hmm. um, in policy. Um, these are really simple things like changing the wording on tax letters or using smart defaults. Yeah, smart opting into pension plans is is an example that he goes back to and back to. Exposing certain types of information, you know, like if you're looking at a car, describing it as like dollars per gallon or dollars per mile instead of miles per gallon. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right. Or, or helping you compare like you know options for your utilities like head to head in a clear way. You know, where previously it was, like, very convoluted and hard to say. Like, medical care is kind of like that, right? Where if you had a nudge that was just like, hey, here's how much um, this clinic costs versus that clinic, ultimately. Um, and here are the outcomes, the average outcomes. Right. You know? Right. Um, so one interesting thing is that as a part of this this week, we were trialing out some of these nudges on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously imperfect of a trial in a way because it's the furthest thing from like double blind that you can get. It's like we yeah. thought of this and we're doing it on ourselves with each other. Yeah. <laughs> but what we did was um, we tried to socially check in with each other. Um, well, let me take a step back. He talks about this acronym called EAST, which is Easy, Attract, Social, and Timely. And it's kind of a framework for thinking about how to do these behavioral nudges. But basically the idea is, you know, make it easy. People are much more likely to do something if it's low hassle. Um, attract is like do something that is attractive, exciting, um, some positive feelings. Um, social is pr pretty self-explanatory. Use social norms, social nudges. Yeah. Yep. And then timely is interventions are more effective before habits have been formed or behavior has been disrupted for other reasons. So I think we tried to do two of those things this week. Um, or maybe three, basically. So we did the check-ins, and then the idea was that if we did the check-ins, we would give each other a gift at the end of the week, a mystery gift. I do have that for you. I have that for you as well. Okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll grab that later. <laughs> yeah, you should, you should. So, so I think we hit easy because our check-ins was just texting each other. Yeah, yeah. Social. Um, and probably attract with the gift. I think timely is an interesting one. And I don't know that it was particularly timely. I guess there was at least one day this week where I was laying on the couch after a really long day at work. And I was exhausted. And I was definitely not going to read. And you did text me. And at first I saw your text and I was like, Ugh, why did this fucker text me? <laughs> But I did end up reading like five, ten pages, and that like you know was some progress um, versus none. So maybe it was timely as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but yeah. on the note of attraction, 
<laughs> Here's what I get to show your patriotism. Oh, man. Oh, man. I wish, uh, I wish we had a fucking video for this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to describe what I'm seeing here. It's a uh, silvery-haired wig and beard uh, that is an Uncle Sam costume. <laughs> I'm about to put this shit on. <laughs> I want you to take note that it's not just a wig and a beard, but it also comes with Uncle Sam eyebrows. Like, oh, really? Like, white, bushy eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I might have to, like... I might have to wear this a lot. <laughs> I'm gonna wear this and point at the camera tomorrow at work. Yeah. <laughs> you should. Okay, wait. Um, so I'll I'll leave you with something to chew on before I go get your gift. Um, oh, this is like has an adhesive. I hope it's not too. Strong. Oh shit! You might not. You're gonna get real warm if you adhere that to your face right now. You might want right, to save save the beard for later. Yeah, save it for like a date night or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit, shit. Maybe I'll hide this and then I'll like pull it out tomorrow for date night. Oh hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you gotta hide that too, because that's gonna be easily seen. The, oh the man! Package. Okay, and then uh, I don't have the Uncle Ham hat though, so I'm like, that's I, true. I but would it, have to use just like the cowboy hat, and then I'd look like Robert E. Lee or such. <laughs> it it <laughs> is uh it is Halloween season though, so you could easily acquire the Uncle Sam hat. You yeah, that's true. Like, that's true. Uh, hey, I need to go get some gas so I don't have to stop tomorrow morning, and then just I do have to get gas. <laughs> perfect, perfect opportunity. Alright, and then I also got you this uh, this dog toy. Oh, he's gonna love this. The last one of this that he had, we got hot sauce on it, so we've been waiting to, like, wash it. <laughs> That's just sad. Why are you feeding the dog hot sauce? Um, he's just being, like, a little fucking rebel. <laughs> no, it's just like I was going through a bottle of hot sauce in a matter of, like, days, and I splashed it on it by mistake. Oh, okay. And it's just been sitting there on the washing machine. So it'll be nice to not have to wash it. <laughs> Wait, uh, so at Stanford, there was a guy called BJ Fogg. And he was a professor. At the pers- He founded the Persuasive Technology Lab. Uh-huh. So his behavioral design approach is like, you know, one that's been heavily influential in Silicon Valley. And basically what it boils down to, um, one, of, one of his like little acronyms is BMAT. Mm-hmm. So behavior equals motivation, uh, ability, and a trigger. So it kind of maps in an interesting way to East, where it's like you can make a behavior easier to perform. You can make people more able to perform it. Or you can make it, you know, more motivational in the sense of like, you know, use social norms, make it more attractive. And the timeliness has to do with the trigger. You know, like what is going to remind the person and, and what is the right time frame in which to remind the person to take this action? So I'll let you like pontificate on the like similarities and differences while I get your gift. That is interesting. So, but so I want to hear your pontification too. So I'm gonna keep the door open. B map is behavior is equals motivation, ability, and a prompt. So um, I, I looked this up and I'm seeing this little chart here where it's basically like. Uh, a graph and on the x-axis is ability going from hard to easy and on the y-axis is motivation going from low to high and, and I guess the point he's making is that things that are in the top half of the graph top right half that are easy to do 
or you have high motivation um, but are hard to do, that's where prompts succeed. But things that are hard and low motivation or things that are just super low motivation, prompts aren't going to um, get you over there. I mean, I think that's kind of, that, that is pretty similar to a lot of the, the stuff in the nudge unit. Um, I think in particular at the end during like risks and limitations section, he talks about how, you know, in terms of especially like, I thought what he was saying climate change was a good example of this, but like these behavioral nudges are all about like small incremental improvements over existing policy but they're not like, you know, revolutionary changes. So I think that's kind of related to like, if something's so hard to do, if it's such a big change, right? Like, for example, eliminating the externalities, the market failure of um, like carbon emissions, small behavioral nudges probably aren't enough to do it. Like there has to be some more heavy handed regulation there or something has to change. Maybe so, yeah, maybe so. Um, There's an argument for that for sure. Right. Right. But on the other hand, you know, there's a large area of stuff where the behavioral nudges can can be done. Um, and also, you know, they're, they're very effective, they're low cost, and they're very high ROI. So I think, like, definitely we should be doing those in general. Um, well, and I would say, you know, in some cases you see a pretty stark result from nudges, right? Like, um, as an example, the test to um, become a police officer in England, you know, getting minority applicants to pass at the same rate as, like, uh, whites, just by asking up front, you know, how, how do you think being a police officer is going to have a positive impact on your community or something of that nature? You know, like, what does this mean to you? Um, is pretty stark. That's a massive shift. Yeah, yeah. No, that that is a great case study. And it was literally, like, the pass rate improved by 50%. Yeah. By adding yeah. that one question, single sentence, at the beginning of the test, before the test. Starts. Or like default savings or default organ donation, you know? Yeah. Like, as an example, let's say you had um, a dealership that sold, like, you know, electric vehicles and gasoline vehicles. As a default, if the salespeople first showed folks, like, the electric vehicle, that one default, you know, that we're going to go through the electric vehicles first might actually dramatically change purchasing choices for folks, right? Um, so I think, um, I, I understand his general point and I don't know the answer to it. In, in a sense, a carbon tax would be like a nudge too, right? Yeah, but... It's a little more heavy handed because you, you have to pay. It's like a little more coercive. So right. I guess that's not a nudge really. I mean, yeah. Right. I think that's kind of, at least by the classical, like, you know, American Chicago economics, like failure... Yeah. Um, classification yeah. of nudges I think a carbon tax goes beyond that but I think one thing that's that's good in my opinion about BIT in the UK and what they were doing is they didn't really constrain themselves to like this narrow definition of you know what's acceptable as a like what counts as a nudge or what doesn't Yeah, I think they took a very pragmatic approach they were like listen we have two years in order to make an impact or shut down yeah. So yeah. let's find out areas where we can run some experiments and change things and let's find places where they're hurting for solutions um, and let's just go try there and, and make some changes. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I, I, I do support like pragmatism, especially in government, but 
in any sort of governance, right? Like whether it's an organization like a business or a nonprofit um, or government. Um, ultimately, you know, I think we need like practical solutions that actually work for people. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think largely speaking, I mean, by by definition or by by the way they were circumscribed by their mandate, they really couldn't use coercive methods. They weren't, you know, having people locked up or like passing taxes. So their their toolkit was, you know, a non-coercive toolkit effectively. It was a toolkit predicated upon psychological framing, um, psychological nudges, using an understanding of how people's minds work to guide them towards positive behaviors without robbing them of their liberty. Yep. So even though they weren't as strict on that because they're um, they're Brits and they're just a bunch of alcoholics, <laughs> they still... <laughs> I was thinking about that when you were talking about uh, BMAT. Yeah. So I was like, you notice how he has like, you know... Um, the same number of letters, but has that equal sign? Yeah. It's because he's like not an alcoholic. He's a little bit smarter, so it's like an equation. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Speaking of alcoholic, Uh-oh. have you ever heard of one of these? Oh, shit. <laughs> Damn, son. Is this an action figure? Not so, only is it an action figure, it's a Force Link 2.0 action oh figure. Oh shit, I gotta get a Force Link 2.0. I wonder if I can reverse engineer the uh, Force Link 2.0. It's probably just like an NFC thing. I'm looking at a Wampa action figure along with Luke Skywalker in the Hoth outfit, complete with lightsaber, and the Wampa has a detachable arm. So this is going on either my desk or the bookshelf right behind my desk, like ASAP. This is sick. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to buy the Force Link 2.0 as well. to See what he says? The yeah. Sounds. That's what they want. Yeah. Or I feel like there should be a way to like reverse engineer. I mean, it's got to be either NFC or Bluetooth Low Energy, right? It can't be anything more fancy than that. If you do reverse engineer it, we can talk about it on the next podcast. <laughs> I should spend that time working on the app, though, instead of that. <laughs> That's true. All right, I won't be reverse engineering that. I, it's uh, it's not focused. Well, thank you. <laughs> so as far as risks and limitations, yeah, definitely. And um, hopefully that motivates you. <laughs> <laughs> How could I not be motivated by a Wampa? At some point, we'll, we, we'll talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So... You know, I'm not going to go deep on that, but, um, you know, there is some evidence to show, like, if a reward is too large, it actually robs you of your intrinsic motivation. Whereas if it's sufficiently small, you're still able to, you know, conceptualize yourself as having done it with your free will, you know? Um, And one of the first studies that, like, dug into this was, like, by a guy called Harry Harlow. Hopefully that's his name. (laughs) uh, Where he had a bunch of monkeys... um, work on these really complicated puzzles and he like left them with the puzzles and when he came back he was like oh they've like completed these puzzles but there's no reward like there's no food there's no sex you know this was a this was at a time where psychology was very behaviorist and was coming out of like you know the kind of freudian psychodynamic period so the idea that like a primitive ish creature would just like solve these puzzles for no reason even though it was really hard 
and in fact that their motivation was diminished when they were given food for solving it um, was kind of like the birth of the psychological concept of intrinsic motivation yeah that's interesting that's interesting sadly the only thing I can think of is making like a snarky comment about how like um <laughs> The, the VCs and the startup founders must know about this and that's why they you know do their equity grants for early employees the way that they do what? It's because they know that if the reward's too large that you're gonna lose motivation so they, just, <laughs> they just fuck you over and make sure that they have uh, you know right of first refusal on all the shares yeah. the liquidation preference all that shit because if, if the upside is too high you're just gonna not be motivated anymore <laughs> No, I think with with that there's some there's some interesting interesting um, research. So like you know, this week for the video we we went through um, Kahneman and Tversky's original prospect theory paper, and one of the findings there is people significantly overweight certainty um, mm-hmm. as opposed to like an uncertain gain. So in their research, what they found is a sixty five percent chance of winning a hundred dollars is equal to just having like getting no money for the majority of people. And yeah. Both of those are about equivalent to a 35% chance of losing $100. That's interesting. Yeah. So basically basically what that tells me is like for most people working at a startup at all is just not an appealing proposition. Yeah. You know, cuz like the 5-year survival rate for a venture funded startup in a startup hub like this is roughly 65%. Um, I tried to look up the source where I found that originally. Yeah. I was unable to find it, but that's the number that's in my head. So if any of you knows, like, you know, where, what this source is that I read this from, because I was researching whether or not I should move to San Francisco Bay, um, and suffice it to say the survival rate was significantly higher here, almost double. Uh, here, uh, Cambridge and New York City. Interesting. Um... But that 65%, going back to Kahneman and Tversky's research, a 65% chance at a gain is unappealing to most. Yeah. To the point where they'd rather just not pursue it. Yeah. Um, so I think any startup equity, like really it, it caters to a very specific type of person for whom, for some reason, they like, you know, like to gamble on gains. Most people like to gamble on losses, irrationally so. So for example, if people have the opportunity to like lose $500 or, you know, lose $1,000 at a 50% chance, which the expected value of those two is the same. Right. They would much prefer to gamble on losing $1,000 because yeah. they have a chance of losing nothing. Right. Um, yeah. That is interesting. I wonder why that is. But the opposite is true for gains. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about the videos is like the stuff I've been like reading for them. So we're probably gonna cancel the videos because put more effort into this, put more effort into um, creating a higher quality podcast, and then also like work on the app. And I feel massive sunk cost bias for that. But I can still say the statement I just said. I'd just be like, instead of in this week's video, I'll just be like, just say the fact in this podcast. Yeah. So that'll be cool. Yeah, and I also think, like, I mean, if you, we can get into this more later. It's probably a discussion for later, but I guess uh, all I'm saying is that, you know, 
if we ramp down the videos for now in the short term, that doesn't mean, you know, no videos ever again, or it doesn't necessarily mean, um, I think we're still in a pro in a stage where we're figuring out, you know, what makes sense and what we have time for and what's going to click. So I wouldn't rule anything out at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Maybe just ramp down a little bit and refocus on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, get this locked and, and good to go before um, expanding it. Okay, so before we get into risks and limitations, one example of the uh, behavioral techniques and um, stuff that they implemented that I thought was pretty interesting was um, he was talking about how when he was a lecturer at um, Cambridge, the department used to hand out feedback forms at the end. And uh, one of the older faculty colleagues was just like, oh yeah, I kind of try and take a quick glance through them. You might want to do the same. You get the odd idea, but you won't get much for them. Basically like saying that they're pretty much useless. Um, and it was basically a series of two contrasting statements or descriptors with a long bar in between with students encouraged to put a mark down to indicate their view of the lecture. So an example is like, on one side it's gonna say, reading lists were too short and ina inadequate. And on the other side it's gonna say, reading lists were too long and detailed. And they would just randomly mark the line somewhere in between. So there are a bunch of issues with that in terms of like psychometric evaluations, right? Like scales weren't numerated, so it's difficult to turn it in, into averages and make quantitative comparisons. Students weren't asked to give overall evaluative ratings. The information was not fed back to subsequent students or even like allowed the faculty to compare the performance of lectures internally. So he pushed a bunch on this and got it so that the questionnaires were better and that they were now very detailed and um, they allowed the lecturers to like circulate them internally but the committee was still not willing to publish the ratings to the students, obviously. Unsurprisingly, yeah. Yeah. But what I thought was very impressive is later, when he was at BIT, um, they worked with the university's minister in the UK, and they pushed for all British universities to ask comparable questions on student satisfaction and to publish them. Um, and they were successful. So... Today, any prospective student can, in seconds, rank universities and courses across the UK by student satisfaction. Um, and the universities are basically required to publish that data. Um, That's a big deal. Which I thought, yeah, was pretty amazing, honestly. Um, and, and also, they did this with patient experience data um, for uh, GPs or primary care doctors in the NHS. I love that. So there is literally NHS Choices, a government website where people in the UK can go and they can like sort GPs by range and they can say, okay, what are the ratings for across uh, patient experience, your ability to see your preferred GP, operating hours, ease of phone contact, making an appointment. Yeah, I, I guess the only challenge I would see with that is like, so now it's clear who the best GPs are. Yeah. And now they're booked up for months, right? Yeah. Whereas in like the American system, what might happen is, okay, it's clear who the best GPs are. Now their prices go up and like, you know, there's kind of like, that, that, that way you can moderate the demand and kind of like, you know, you don't have the, the same price level for people who are not 
providing the same service at all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I have no idea how the actual pricing works with this, but I, I would imagine that it's the same in a nationalized healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, if they if they moderated the prices based on some of those like outcomes, I think that would be great. You know, that would be a step in the right direction. Um, I'm not convinced they could do that as effectively as the market could, but we don't have a, a, a free market system here. Yeah, know? exactly. Like the few places that are, that actually do have like just clear and transparent pricing, oftentimes are cheaper than going to like nonprofit hospitals where you pay with you know whatever level of insurance you happen to have. Yeah, which is why medical tourism is becoming a big thing. I mean, I have a coworker who recently went to Mexico to get a bunch of dental work done. Yeah. Um, and he said he basically went to, like, Tijuana. And there was, like, this, like, gleaming, like, steel and glass, like, building. It's, like, 30 stories. And it's got, like, every kind of, like, medical establishment in there. It's got, like, dentists, oral surgeons, plastic surgeons, urologists, like, all kinds of stuff. Um yeah. Um, because you pay cash yeah you pay cash there you go yeah. right like I, I think honestly I'm, I'm at the point where I would totally consider that because you know like talent is at least somewhat uniformly distributed depends on in what but in these fields yeah I think that's true um, and I, I think with a lot of things increasingly like you know like on the software side you can learn things online though I will say like since I've come here I do think there's some what's the word like compounding that occurs in like a local basis so for example like the stuff that people are reading and keyed into here and the ways in which they think about things um don't necessarily like aren't necessarily obvious when you're not here right yeah so yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things like that but it's much more flat than it used to be um yeah but anyway so what are we talking about Tijuana medical tourism um that's the first, like, good thing I've heard of happening in Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's there's got to be nice beaches and stuff, too, but, yeah. Good food. Definitely great food. That's without a doubt. All right, so one um, way in which you can gauge the, you know, ethical value of a nudge whether or not it's efficacious, um, attractive, and there's one more. Let me see here. Efficacious, attractive, and accountable. So basically, like um, transparency. So a lot of people are concerned about nudges because they think that these approaches are kind of like close to the dark arts of propaganda and subconscious manipulation. Others are worried that behavioral approaches are not decisive enough. And then some folks are like, you know, the people who are nudging others are just like unaccountable. Um, and all of these are, um, are valid concerns. One of them that's interesting is whether the efficacy of nudges are, might be reducing over time um, as they're overused. So an example is like banner ads, right? People widely have banner blindness now because that technique has just been overused. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with nudges though, what he says is if nudges are used appropriately to go with the grain uh, of things that people on reflection want to do, the effects have been seen to persist. Um, on the flip side, you know, people kind of become blind and, um, just non-reactive to nudges that are more manipulative, such as banners. 
Right. Or like, you know, doctors hate this man. <laughs> like clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was an interesting thing that he said. Um, basically that the, you know, the thing with nudges is that they're just nudges and ultimately like they're ex- working on or, or exploiting, if you will, this um, idea of like stage one thinking or whatever, where you're like quickly making snap judgments about things and it's like, you know, trying to acknowledge that that's a lot of the decision making that happens is just this snap, you know, instinct and heuristic driven decision making process and not the slow, deliberate decision making process. Yeah. And then, you know, designing interventions, whether it's in policy or whether it's in products or whatever, um, that are aware of that or exploit that. Um, and then he basically goes on to say, like, whoops, he goes on to say, you know, this isn't like, um, um, basically, if you really don't want to do something, the nudge is going to be less effective. It's not going to make you, um, it's, it, you're not going to fall into doing it as much because it's not something you want to do ultimately. And that's kind of how I read one of the arguments that he was making. And... I'm not sure that that's actually borne out by the data, to be fair. Like, I think the particular example I have in mind is things like social media or, like, um, you know, engagement-driven tech products, right? Yeah, where people YouTube, are more Twitter, engaged than they Facebook, want to be. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to spend 30 minutes scrolling through Instagram Reels ever. Yeah. Yeah. But I definitely do that. It's not never that I do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I know that it's not something I really want to do. Yeah, but it's like they've designed it, you know, with the appropriate level of unpredictability, attractiveness, ease, um, timeliness. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why they index so heavily on usability, you know? Right. Where it's just like one thing to the next to the next because... They know you're not that motivated to do it. Right. Yeah. But they also capitalize on motivation by having content that's, you know, plays on your emotions, is unexpected, is story-driven, concrete, um, and simple, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to reading more, we're trying to do, I'm not going to say the opposite, because, you know, you can read more and read things that are unexpected and emotionally salient and you know story driven right but they're gonna be less simple and they're gonna be less um, easy to digest than you know BuzzFeed or Instagram or or one of these other sources so it's like yeah it's not easy like I find myself um, I find myself doing that from time to time too with, with YouTube I would say yeah it's my like poison yeah yeah yeah, YouTube is, is tough as well. Um, yeah, and with YouTube, it's hard because you go there sometimes to, like, you know, learn something useful. Like, you're like, oh, I'm going to look up this one thing. But then you get pulled into a rabbit hole of, like, other things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I don't go to YouTube mostly to learn things. I go to watch, like, stupid-ass videos. I'm usually going to watch some kind of, like, tutorial or, like, you know. I did, like, a jiu-jitsu tutorial or, like, oh, how do I do this thing with, like, the podcast or like a design thing or yeah I'm watching like some stupid ass vice video or like uh all gas no breaks with Andrew Callahan 
Your channel five news. Swazi like, gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That that was an old no, I, uh, Vice video. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen the Swazi gold video. That was that's dope. Haven't seen that. I mean, I I did see that, but I saw that like in high school or something. You know, like a long time ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> For some reason, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Vice. Or like crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> I like. There's this. There's this guy called Taji, and he has, like, this series of Vice videos that are really funny called One Star Reviews. He basically just, like, goes on Yelp and finds, like, the most horribly rated place, and then goes there to, like, get their services, and then, like, while he's there, at some point, he'll, like, ask them about the reviews and give them an opportunity to, like, set the record straight. But he does this in, like, the most horrifying, like, kinds of services to do this for. Like, he goes and gets a tattoo from the one-star tattoo artist. He goes and gets a piercing from the one-star, like, piercing artist. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see this. He puts his life on the line for Vice Media. Holy shit. Dude, that's scary. He, like, tried to, like, go out to ocean in the one-star rated, like, inflatable boat from Amazon. What? There's, like, a rainstorm in the Hudson Bay. He's, like, trying to Jesus Christ. That's good entertainment, though, man. That's, that's... That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's the shit that I'm watching on YouTube. <laughs> Dude, this is why the news media is like collapsing because they have to compete with this. <laughs> They're like, how how are we supposed to like get people's attention with this shit out there? No, but I'm gonna watch that the moment this podcast is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that oh shit's God. funny. Um, okay, inside the nudge unit. Let's see what else. I mean, risks and limitations, you know, interesting. I thought a lot of what he discussed echoed what we were talking about initially, which is, you know, is it ethical for the government to do this? And we kind of talked about, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the two different kind of views on that, right? Like, or the two different angles that you could come at it in terms of it being unethical. The one being, you know, it's like this weird, like, psyops, like, psychological propaganda-like manipulation. And then the other one being that, you know, you're just avoiding taking responsibility and, and passing regulations. And I, I, I thought I did a good job of refuting those things. I mean, I think the, the arguments he made were pretty similar to what we had discussed before, which is, like, um, you know, the government can, like, oftentimes these are using these nudges are alternatives to mandates and not alternatives to inaction, right? Um, so it's either you get the choice preserving nudge or you get the ban. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in that case, the ban, the nudge can be both more effective and um, preserve choice. So I think that's a clear win and cheaper. Well, give me an example, right? Like Texas had a massive littering problem. Yeah. Uh, littering is illegal. Yeah. It's already banned. Um, they passed this campaign called Don't Mess With Texas where they had like prominent Texans like you know um, like a football player or like they had Willie Nelson do this ad and he's like hey you know we uh, as Texans like we're just not for this you know don't mess with Texas right Um, and it actually massively worked because it kind of like played upon people's like sense of social norms as well as sense of meaning you know and kind of like unity they're like hey we are Texas and together we're trying to do this thing Right. Um, yeah. I had another example, but I forgot about it. I forgot what it was. That's okay. Um, oh, fireworks. Yeah. So out here in East Bay, like, people go mad with the fireworks. Fireworks are illegal. Yeah. And we have massive fire risk out here. It's really dry. 
Yeah. Um, I like fireworks, but with the fire risk out here, I'm a little iffy about it. So basically, it's like, it's banned. It's not working at all. I think a social norm nudge here actually could really help. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um, something that, you know, relies on um, this idea of like, we're all in this together. We're trying to reduce the fire risk and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and we're already, like, most of your neighbors are already reducing the fire risk. Like, people around here are already doing this. Are you? Yeah, 90% of people listen to the, whatever, the the fire regulations, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point, and I think it would be effective. I mean, yeah, the, the fireworks out here is quite concerning to me. It's, like, very, very dry here. And, like, you weren't here um, last fall. But um, the fire season last year was bad. Yeah, it looked bad. It was bad. Um, I mean, it's bad this year, too. It's just not ba- as bad, like, very locally, like, in the Bay Area. Yay. Sorry, guys. But, yeah, it's... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah. But the um, fireworks are bad. I, I do think a good... In this context, fireworks are bad. So I do think a good nudge there w- would be... A good idea. Yeah, when I first saw all those signs, I thought it was stupid because in, in like you know the Midwest, it's like fine, you know. Yeah. It's just kind of more like nanny state. Yeah. But out here, if you hike for like ten minutes, you're like, this could go up and smoke any moment. <laughs> like if I drop a match on this, it's gonna light on fire, depending on where you are. No, actually, but, yeah, actually, I mean, I remember one of the biggest fires last year was started because there was a wasp nest in this farmer's ranch, and he went and got like a stake to drive it into the ground into the wasp's nest to like prevent the fire yeah when he was hammering the stake a spark went off of his hammer and hit the grass and started smoldering and it started either the largest or the second largest wildfire in California history yeah that's pretty precarious yeah but I guess you know the only only positive there is like you know the fuel load is reduced for this time yeah you know yeah yeah yeah, I mean, the good news is, I mean, this is a huge sidetrack, this whole fire thing, but the good news is, you know, Cal Fire is very good at what they do. Yeah. They are um, a world-class organization, and, you know, we know a lot more about forest management now than we did 50 years ago. So, hopefully across the next 50 years, with our improved techniques, with, um, you know, a lack of fire suppression, more controlled burns, various things like that, um, things will help. Um, but there is, you know, one of the problems is that people keep building into what's known as the WUI, the Woodland Urban Interface, especially as um, it gets more and more expensive to live in places like the Bay Area Metro itself. People are pushed out into that Woodland Urban Interface, and that's where things get tricky because now there's, you know, settlements there, so they can't do controlled burns. They can't allow fires to just come through because people live there. Yeah, which is why allowing more like multifamily, you know, properties and kind of having a degree of deregulation to enable that would help the Bay Area, you know, like more density and then leave the protected lands protected. Yeah. But, you know, there's that nimbyism element and um, that makes it hard. Like, it's crazy to go to San Francisco and see how many single family homes there are. Yeah. It's like not like, I don't know, I think it's pretty, but it's also kind of a disgrace in a way because it's like... There's all these single-family properties um, that are plenty comfortable, but also utterly unaffordable. Um, and there's people just on the streets. Yeah, yeah. Know? I mean, do you remember we were talking a couple of weeks ago? You had a barbecue, and you, you invited your friends over. And they're talking about how they live near Golden Gate Park, and across the street from them, there's, like, this 
massive house that only has like people there occasionally and they had, they had to go like talk to these neighbors for some reason they're like oh yeah we keep the unit next door empty because um you know our family our kids visit like three times a year or something and they've been living there for you know an extended might even be rent controlled yeah well they probably own it so so probably not okay there you go yeah uh, I, I know a guy who lives in a rent controlled apartment in san francisco um uh, who used to work at morgan stanley <laughs> Uh, has been in the industry for like decades and decades. Really nice guy, but um, he can afford it. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people in the rent control who can't, though. Like, there are many people who've been living in the same rent controlled apartment for like 30 years. Can't and escape. Yeah, they can't move anywhere. You yeah, know? Yeah. They can basically essentially get held hostage by the landlord. Yeah. But they're yeah, also holding. Nice. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a weird. That is. Could easily be a whole like podcast of its own. Podcast of its own, not even a podcast episode, like a, a whole actual podcast. A whole actual yeah. podcast, just about like the housing situation and development and, and what's going on there. I, I I'd be curious to like you know know more about that, so I'd be down to do do that podcast at some point. But um, to to cap off this one, um, yeah, basically, um, you know we. We want to use nudges in a way that are, um, in a way that enhances your choices, in a way that's efficacious, um, in a way that you would want, that goes with the grain of what you would want upon reflection. Um, I think uh, one of the things to be careful of is like the idea that we know better than you what's what's good for you. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but <clears throat> it's kind of this this hard thing. So, for example, like. We talked about like the ice cream cone, right? I see someone walking down the street eating an ice cream cone. I go and smack it out of their hands because I'm like, you know, that's going to kill you at some point. That's unhealthy, right? Like, that's fucked up. Yeah. Even though I'm objectively right about your health, it's like your internal calculus, your internal value function has decided that um, you're getting more utility out of enjoying that ice cream cone than, you know, the health benefits of not having it. Right. So one, one quote they have here from Richard Feynman is, Science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. So the idea being, uh, you know, in, in this context, what they're talking about is like the what works movement and using um, experimental techniques in government. But I also think it speaks to the fact that like the nudgers, be it in government or industry, um, you know, they, I don't know. It's, it's, it's this tough thing where it's like, it's better for them to guide you towards what they perceive as positive actions as opposed to coerce you into them. Um, but I think that transparency and accountability is really important because I don't think they perfectly know what the ideal state of affairs would be for you and for everyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, ultimately, like, tra- transparency is good. I think the thing that I really, that stuck out to me, I was trying to find the quote, but I don't know if I have it here. But basically... The best argument I saw for really doing um, the behavioral nudges and, and thinking very hard about, like, you know, how to lay out the tax letters and stuff like that is that um, you're still nudging people even if you don't think about it. It's just a question of, you know, what direction are you nudging them in, right? Yeah, that's fair. Like, the yeah. example is, yes, one thing you can do in the grocery store is you could decide that candy is high margin and I'm going to put it next to the checkouts 
and that's gonna you know that that's a potentially negative use of nudges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you can say you know I'm gonna put the salad first because it's green and leafy, and or or the produce right at the entrance, and that's gonna get people in. That's gonna get people in. It's gonna get them to buy that stuff more, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that's a positive nudge. But if you just put the if you don't think about it at all and you just lay it out however you want, right? Yeah, Ultimately, like something's still in front and something's still next to the grocery store, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or ultimately, there's still some sentences on the letter you're sending to the tax, to the people who are delinquent on taxes. Right, right. Question is, what are you, you know, what are promoting. you promoting in, inadvertently yeah. um, by the way you word things? Yeah. Um, and I mean, to not, to not choose is also a choice. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. No, I think that's valid. I think that's valid. And I think... Yeah, I think maybe the answer is just like a degree of humility and remembering that we have like, you know, these self-serving attributional biases, you know, where it's like you have to like try to temper your influence and and try to get outside of yourself and maybe take like take a variety of um, inputs, you know, like hear people's voices and yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I guess the last thing for for us that makes me feel good about our use of of any of these types of techniques is that one we're being extremely transparent about it right like google isn't advertising that their um you know head of behavioral uh science was someone who was working in the obama white house adding up behavioral uh insights right they're not advertising that they literally have you know teams of some of the most highly trained behavioral scientists in the world yeah. Um, working on making their products more sticky, right? And encouraging right. you to yeah. use them. Yeah. We're going to be transparent about that. And also, it's going to be very clear what our goal is. So, our goal is to help you read more, whether it's through the podcast, whether it's through any other content that we make, mm-hmm. whether it's through the app that we make, or anything else that we do. Um, so, you know, it's very transparent and open. Yeah. And, and I hope that's, um, you know, people can find some, some comfort in that and maybe some contrast to uh the other entities that they're interacting yeah massive contrast i mean truly truly massive contrast like you know using technology to help you thrive instead of like screwing you over like have you seen this google um trending searches in your area thing now no i haven't okay so on the phone when you when you you know try to search something google gives you a series of unrelated trending searches in your area which are mostly you know salacious tabloid level nonsense um and they're clearly trying to like spur additional engagement and adding little to no value to your life. Yes, you, you know, cheap entertainment. But you know where to find that if you want that. Right. Everyone knows where to find their own version of cheap entertainment. It's not It's not a big problem in our lives that is being solved by that. Right. Um, yeah, so we're, we're not that... Um, one thing I was thinking about this week in terms of framing, and this is probably like the last or single last thing for tonight, is um, we are here to help you read more. We're also here to celebrate reading more. So that's why, you know, last week we did the Japanese Death Poems episode. It's to, you know, enjoy the fruits of having more reading in our lives. Uh, enjoy the the enrichment that comes from that and share that with you. Um, so it's like two sides of a coin, you know, that yeah. we, we kind of do here. Um, yeah, that's Behavioral Nudges Part 2. There'll probably be a few parts to this, honestly. Yeah, um, different a ton books, of books on this. we'll and, check into in the future. Yeah. Yeah, we covered the prospect theory paper. Soon we'll cover um, Taylor's paper. We'll, we'll, we can read Taylor's paper in the context of his book for a future podcast. Yeah. So it'll be good. Or Cialdini's book. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. 
Yeah, really good. And with that, Reading, Reading Rebellion, Rebellion number seven. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, almost two months. Yeah, that's crazy. I was just gonna say number X. Because yeah. I don't know how long <laughs> that's hardcore. I like that. <laughs> Create a new number system. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Happy Sunday, everybody. Like and subscribe. We uh, just subscribe or favorite and subscribe. Yeah. By the way, in case any of you are wondering, I'm Arik uh, Bhattacharya. And I'm Ayan Bhattacharya. That's that's who we are, these mystery voices that have been in your ears, uh, hopefully for the last few weeks. And, and uh, uh, contact at rdmr.io. We're old school, so send us an email. Hmm? Um, you know, maybe we'll get a real P.O. box so you can send us snail mail. And then maybe a few months later, we'll make social media accounts. <laughs> but first, you got to send us actual letters. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I do prefer that. Or just come to the Bay Area and just try to guess, you know, where we socialize. You know, just... yeah, We've given you, honestly, a bunch of clues throughout this podcast. So if you listen carefully, you'll be able to figure it out. Yeah, and then just try to, like, run into us and, and talk to us about books. I was I'm, I was gonna drop a clue, but I feel like yeah, I'm gonna save it for now. Yeah, let's not drop clues. We don't know. Maybe some like make it too easy. Crazed human is, is sitting there listening to this. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is like the white album of podcasts. So keep listening, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's all real. <laughs> Number nine. Number, Number nine. nine. Number nine. <laughs> <laughs>